Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Pedro da Costa, and it's my pleasure today to welcome back to the program Dr. Jeff Fuhrer. Jeff is a former executive vice president and director of research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, and he's just published a new book called The Myth That Made Us How False Beliefs About Racism and Meritocracy Broke Our Economy. He is now a non resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for joining FedSpeak, and congratulations on the book. Thanks, Pedro. It's great to be with you as always. So I want to get into the book, but I'm going to start with the news. So let's, let's get into the FOMC decision that we just had last week first. Market saw it as a kind of hawkish pause. There was a lot of tweak in the, in the FOMC's own views of uh, you know, how high rates will need to remain for how long. I wonder what you made of the decision and of this, this notion that they're basically using the SCP as a forward guidance tool. Well, so, so there's a lot in that. So let me just talk about the pause first. I think the pause was better than an additional tightening. So that's the good news, but it's not what we needed, I think. I think it's fair to say that up, up to date, cumulatively, cumulatively, they've overdone it in a bit. What I hope is that they're willing to back off later this year and maybe into next. And I know that's not what they've penciled in into the latest SCP forecast. They're going the other direction, but I hope they're going to be data dependent. And if I'm right about the way the data is going to go, I hope they change their minds later and get a little less hawkish. Are you worried that we might not get data because of the government shutdown? And do you have any sense from your past experience as to how that might go down? Well, there there have been delays to key data releases because of government shutdowns, and that is that of course hampers the process. Um, I don't I don't think I don't think fundamentally that the call should be made on one data release anyway. I think the overall trajectory to me is getting clearer. But I do think the Fed might might put some weight on particular data releases because they're trying to gauge whether they've gone far enough or need to go further. And so that could rest on one or two data releases. We'll see. So yeah, it's a bit of an inconvenient time. There's also the fundamentals of the economy of having the government pause and uh, auto workers strike and all that. Well, Absolutely. But we, it sounds like you don't think they should go any further. And in fact, as you suggested, they might have overdone it already. But do you exactly. think they might tighten additionally, given that they've priced in another hike? Yeah, it's entirely possible. I guess, you know, sort of the, the bar for tightening, I wish it were higher. But I don't think it is that high for them. I think there, you know, there wasn't loads of dispersion in the SAP SAP around doing an additional tightening. A lot of people probably will sign on to that, especially the voting members. So I wish the bar were higher, but I think it's relatively low, especially if we get, as this is what I said back to the earlier point, even just a month or two of data that runs just a bit contrary to their desired trajectory, I think they could do it again. And I, I don't agree with that, but I could see it happening. So what do you see as the likely path of inflation in the next six to 12 months? Do you think this disinflation will be steady, bumpy, or is there a risk that will plateau at kind of levels that are uncomfortable still? Well, I mean, month to month, it's always a little bumpy. And I think that's a risk in overinterpreting something that happens one month or another. But that's that's everybody knows that, I think. I think the underlying rate of inflation today is around two and a half to three percent. I think that's where it is. And I think it's going down. Um, and I think that's true for both the PCE and the CPI, depending on which month you look, it's a little clearer maybe in one indicator or the other. But uh, I think that means inflation is going to continue to decline, to decline gradually from where it is, starting at 25 to 3%, let's say, and, and, and likely go down. I think a couple of things that are working in its favor, this is not going to be an exhaustive list, but you know, there's an oil price shock we're in the, sort of in the middle of now. That's probably going to retrace at some point or at least stop going up. That's going to help us in the, in the overall and the core inflation numbers. And then I think the underlying path of rents, um, which is huge in the CPI, but still significant in the PCI, that's for slower increases. But that, of course, as you know, takes some time to feed in, into the official measures. I think as it does, 
uh, you're going to see that improvement coming from from probably both of those sources. Right now, services, which you know the Fed focuses on reasonably because it's a large fraction of what we all consume, but services excluding that rent for shelter is running at below one and a half percent on an annualized basis. So I, I think that's actually what the trajectory is. We are down fairly low, looking through all the noise and likely to glide lower. Not a, not at a dramatic pace, but I think we're going to go down lower. Okay. Uh, and what about on the economic side? We've had better than expected data. People are you know, torn between whether the economy is accelerating or heading for a recession. There seems to be a really wide band of uncertainty there. And I also found it interesting that Chair Powell downplayed the, you know, the possibility of a soft landing being the Fed's baseline. But at the same time, if you look at the SCP, it kind of looks like their baseline because growth is actually accelerating and they don't see the need for much additional economic pain in order to get to 2%. So I don't know exactly why he downplayed that. I, I really don't. It was a little bit puzzling to me, but I think one way to think about it is they don't want to be blamed for forecasting a soft landing if it doesn't occur, in part because I think one of the main reasons we might not achieve a, a soft landing is because they've over-tightened sort of late in the game when we don't really need it to control inflation, but it isn't going to help the economy. So that's probably just, you know, couching a little, covering his bets. I guess I'll say that's, that's the PG version. He's covering his bets. That's the best interpretation. What do you think the Fed means when it says higher for longer? What do you, how do you think that plays out in practice? And is that like, is there a, a good historical precedent for, for such an approach? I think they're doing kind of what you said, which is using the SEPP and some of their language to try to shape expectations a bit. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not inside the Fed, but if I had to guess, I'd say they were looking at the constellation of asset prices, interest rates, and so on, and said, well, maybe they don't believe firmly enough that we're going to tighten and remain high. So let's undertake this communications offensive to make sure that they do. And I think, you know, mission accomplished. <laughs> Ten-year rates are up quite a bit over the last month. And so for those who didn't believe, I think they do now believe. They look at the SEP. That was one of the biggest shocks, obviously, in the meeting from last week. And they take on board that, okay, I guess they're serious for now. So that's that's what I think in practice, higher for longer means is just, we, we want to convince you that we're going to stay the course here with, with higher rates. And we want to see that reflected in interest rates and other asset prices. Push back the timing of expected cuts as far yeah. out as possible. I mean, even early, just a little earlier, it was just, you know, toward the beginning of this year, the first few months, a lot of financial markets saw things easing this year. I thought they'd they'd peak out somewhere and start to ease. And In fact, like, well, September no. might have been that it, month. Yeah, that, exactly. It, At so, that time, yeah. yeah. And now that's that's kind of much more firmly off the table. I think that's what the Fed wanted the markets to believe, so they do. And what do you make of this recent spike in 10-year yields? What do you think is driving it? Is just this recognition higher for longer? Is it fears about global demand from places like China and Japan? I think it's more the former than the latter. I think it's just a more or less straight reading. I mean, the arithmetic maybe doesn't work strictly to get, you know, the 10 year rate up to four and a half plus, but it, you know, that's, I think qualitatively, that's what's going on. They read the SCP and said, okay, we're, we're in a, we're in a different regime than we thought we were six months ago. This is going to be, you know, higher for longer. And so that's how we price the 10 year and whether that's exactly right on a, like an expectations theory basis or not is harder to say, but qualitatively, I think that's what's going on. And what's going on in the rest of the world is, is important but maybe second order at the moment. Okay. Now let's get into the book. If we, if we right. want, maybe you could crystallize for us what this myth that made us consists of and how you think it has distorted America's view of itself. Well, it's a big question. There's a lot of ways in which it's distorted it, but to, to skinny it down here. So the myth is a collection of narratives 
Um, there are a few really important ones. The first is the self-made man, you know, the, the, the idea that meritocracy, hard work is all you need to success. Second is that uh, the only thing that big companies are responsible for is maximizing shareholder value. That's that's it. And it's really at the expense of pretty much everything else, notably their workers. <laughs> um, and then the third is that small government is is important. There's Government is there to minimize interference with this supposedly free market economy. I'd add that um, the notion that we are a post-racist country is critical because it interacts with several of those, notably the meritocracy one. So that, you know, because people of families of color disproportionately suffer poorer economic outcomes, you know, then you blame that on them. And now we've got racism and the meritocracy uh, narrative interacting in a particularly pernicious way. So those are, those are the, the narratives. I mean, together, I think they've packed a huge wallop in terms of doing economic damage. What um, kind of damage would you say they've done? Well, so I think the worst consequences are that, so taking the meritocracy myth combined with the, the idea that there's no racism operating in the economy, uh, that's responsible, I think, for setting families of color back generations in terms of income equality, but even much more strikingly in terms of wealth equality. That is a huge hit. And as it, you know, I emphasize generations because it took generations to do that. The denial of opportunity over generations should be apparent now. It is apparent to me in the data. It's not a guess. This is the way the data look. And uh, the history, the historical record on the use of those narratives to shape policy so that it slants way too much towards white families and way too much toward people of wealth and, and large corporations and away from building opportunity for families of color. The historical record on that is just, I think is super clear. So it has done that. That is one of the largest uh, pieces of damage. But I also think as almost as disheartening, not as disheartening because it does not have the same racial overlay is that we feel free to kind of discard or dispose of families that live in the lower classes in our economy. They're doing well, both people of color and loads of white families too, whose opportunities essentially are just so limited that they have very little chance of ever succeeding. And the data is really clear on that. The odds of you moving up from poor circumstances to really good ones are really small. So uh, so on income and wealth, that's the damage that the, those narratives have left behind. And that's not a full list because if you can include damage that's done in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of incarceration, in terms of access to education, successful entrepreneurship, the list goes on and on. So it has done a huge amount of damage. So what kind of uh, policy priorities did your research lead you to sort of become an advocate for? Uh, that you think could address these very, very big and structural problems? Well, I, I think there's a there's a few think, basic things that are really all about building human capital and financial capital, primarily by providing access to the tools and the opportunity to build financial and human capital. So the three I have in mind are one, um, equal access to especially early childhood education, it's just so foundational. The research is just overwhelming on that. But the research on the returns to it, the dollar you get back for every dollar invested are just compelling, you know, five, six to one easily. So that's one is early childhood access to education. Um, I, I'd, I'd add that on the education front, we could do a much better job providing reliable pipelines through our community college system so that folks from lower income communities have a reliable path to a sustainable income that changes not only them, but their, their families uh, maybe forever. 
The second is I think we need to incentivize a significant change in our business models, but this is really especially for large corporations. I think small businesses are a very different animal, face different, different challenges. Those, those large corporations are incredibly profitable. And yet, they for their lower wage folks, they pay really poor wages. They provide meager benefits. It's not, it's a puzzle to me, honestly, how they could do that, especially when you know that the profits that they earn around two and a half trillion dollars last year, about a trillion of that went to repurchasing st uh, stock, doing stock buybacks to, to boost stock prices. That's not a productive use of financial capital and could have been much better deployed trying to make sure that the, the outcomes for their lower wage workers were much better than, than they have been. So there's, there's room to incentivize changes there. I talk about that in the book. And finally, I think we need to address the wealth gaps that exist. Those, re re those reflect, as I said, really generations of systemic discrimination. And to do that, um, we can talk about this more, but I, I think we need to consider at least some forms of wealth transfer. And I know as soon as I say that, um, I'm going to get blowback and, and it's, you know, it's politically impossible. Wait, what are you talking about? You're taking my wealth. I understand that. I also recognize that we have kind of, I feel a moral imperative to consider it seriously. And I also recognize that if we don't do anything about it, I would feel, and I think much of the country would feel a sense of despair uh, if if those wealth gaps continue for the next generation or two or three, it's like we hadn't we have an opportunity perhaps to do something. If we don't, what 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 were we thinking? Why did we not take that seriously? That that we we know we did that as a country. What's our responsibility? Well, it's significant. What are we going to do? Well, let's talk about that. So one of the really interesting things I found from reading the book was that you just you spent a lot of time not just looking at data but also talking to real people about their their situations, economic, financial, and and beyond, and I it's more like a reporter or a sociologist job than than a macroeconomist. I wondered what you you know what you got out of that experience, if and if anything was surprising out of those conversations. Well, uh, I, I got a lot out of it. I felt like it was kind of a privilege, really, to be able to connect with a lot of low income uh, families, representatives of those families, largely families of color, but not exclusively. I think, so I was able to do that partly because I had a bridge to them through some nonprofit institutions that they already trusted, and those institutions trusted me, and so sort of built a bridge of trust, so that I was could talk to them. They would trust, revealing to me their life stories, which were, you know, harrowing in many cases. And then we had folks were breaking down in tears in some cases, and about I felt pretty badly about that, but by the same token, I felt really grateful that they were willing to share the painful aspects of their their histories. Um, I mean, look, I, my, my training in my, uh, professional life is, is largely about data and, you know, theory and rigor and all that. And I don't think you can tell a story about the entire country's economy without, without using data, because I, if I talked to 15 or 20 or 25 people, I couldn't possibly tell you with any confidence that what I had heard was represented. But what I can say is that knowing what I know in the data and then allowing the voices of people who lived that experience speak really enriches me and I hope the book and I hope the readers take a different experience away as well. So I, I, I you know, I, I just think it was a privilege to be part of that that preparation for for writing the book. I think they bring authenticity to it um, that that you can't get just from looking at data analysis. It's critical, but but I think it really adds, I hope it really adds an important element to the book of humanity. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. These are real human folks. Um, and, and, you know, 
maybe a part of my personal journey, starting from when I was a kid in a you know very middle or maybe lower middle class family, was just recognizing and listening to the experience of other people so that I had some inkling, not I'll never have a full understanding, but some inkling of what it's like to grow up without many of the privileges that I had. That's important for everybody to know because it helps you better understand what those struggles are like. And then when it comes to decisions about policy, who gets what and why, maybe more people will say, yeah, you know, I'm doing okay. Um, well, especially the people who are doing really okay. They might say, yeah, these aren't people who are abusing resources. They're scrambling like mad to use the scarce resources they have and just try to survive. And they're not really quite making it. And that's not right for this country. So that that was the, the benefit of that, I think. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate your passion and your insights. And uh, congratulations again on the book. That Thanks was Jeff much. Fuhrer. And uh, the book is called The Myth That Made Us. Thank you again for joining me. Great to talk with you, Pedro.